I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey guys, this is Santos, your pediatric infectious diseases doctor. And hi, this is ER Josh here tonight as a guest. I'm really looking forward to this. All right, so and we had so much fun covering space medicine that we figured we'd drop it down just a little and cover flight medicine this week. And to help us do that, we have a very special guest, flight personnel. <laughs> a good friend of mine, Sarah. Sarah, why don't you introduce yourself? Say hello. Hi, everyone. I'm Sarah. I am a flight attendant or personnel, as Josh likes to say. I'm happy to be here. I'm a fan of the show, so it's, it's it's a real honor. You hear that, Santosh? We have fans. Yay! <laughs> fan, fans. We got fans. <laughs> I'm so happy we have fans. Part of the reason I thought it'd be fun to do flight medicine this week is, one, again, we are a travel medicine podcast, and our logo has a plane in it, and we had yet to cover anything plane-related. So it seemed like a good time. <laughs> Another is, I don't know about you guys, but I have... Have you ever been on a plane and the call goes out by one of the... That there are snakes on a plane? Oh, I've had it with these mother effing snakes. <laughs> There's too many. Too many. <laughs> too many snakes. <laughs> and the first thing they do as soon as somebody gets bitten by one of those snakes, if Sam Jackson's not on the plane, is they we ask. Is they, doctor. Naturally. Exactly. They page, are there any medical personnel on board? Now, I've actually been in one of those situations. And it takes me back. First year of residency, newly minted. Intern Dr. J, full of all sorts of helpful knowledge and feeling pretty good about himself, 
I was on a flight to Japan from Los Angeles, and about halfway over the ocean, the call went out that, is there a doctor on board? And, of course, I leapt up and I said, I'll save him! <laughs> Which gave me some strange looks from, you know, the people around who were just like, save who, what? <laughs> and I started walking, you know, toward, I, I let the flight attendant know, and I was brought to the back of the plane, and back there they had a young gentleman, who, well, young by my standards, so, you know, 60s, who was sitting there kind of clutching at his chest and saying that he had was having some chest pain, at which point I had a heart attack because <laughs> as a first-year <laughs> medical intern, you yeah. usually, your knowledge of how to treat any kind of chest pain sort of ends, begins and ends with give aspirin and call a cardiology consult. <laughs> and, and don't forget oh, the yeah. ER. Right. And the ER. Well, well, remember, he would have, there was no ER on this plane. I was, I was the ER as well. And I, and then, you know, in my moment of panic, I saw another older, older gentleman who was responding to the call and also said, you know, he was a, a medical, doctor and he got back there and he saw me and he took one look he's like oh internal medicine i'm like yeah and he's like great and then turned around and walked away <laughs> and i'm like oh yeah dermatologist uh, and i was like oh crap what do i do so of course i start thinking to myself all right well i don't have my usual bat utility belt with me on the plane so i call it er josh Right. That's what I should have done. And we'll get into we'll actually get into the physicians avail uh, the resources available to physicians a little bit later. But I got a chance to look inside the the flight kit, and essentially what I did for the guy is throw oxygen on him, chuck a couple aspirin down, and take a really detailed history. While the flight attendants and the pilot were kind of asking me, do we need to divert the plane? Do we need to divert the plane? The nearest place it would have been diverted was, I kid you not, Siberia. Oh, God. <laughs> so I was en route to Japan with a possible stop in Siberia if I felt it was necessary for this person's medical care. Now, once my heart attack ended and I got a good history from the guy, it turns out he did not have a heart disease. He actually had a history of panic disorder, and blessed be the man that he was, he had brought EKGs and his doctor's permission from a recent hospitalization with him on board the plane that oh, showed wow. he was medically cleared <laughs> to fly. So all he really needed was some oxygen and a little bit of a sedative, and he was okay, and I was okay, and we got to carry on without having to stop in Siberia. And I learned that I was not ready as an intern to qualify myself as a doctor, and it did not come up again for another four or five years. So lucky. I'm confused so now. Are you a internal medicine doctor or a psychiatrist now? Yeah. <laughs> well, I needed a psychiatrist after. Yeah. I'll tell you this much. I was not going into bars and trying to pick up women. You know what I do for a living uh, anytime after that. Now, humility. It's a good lesson in humility. Yeah, yeah. Not one I get to learn often. Yeah. <laughs> now, ER Josh, you've also had a a flight medicine experience, right? Yes, I definitely did. When I got the call, 
there was any medical personnel, I guess we're using that word now, podcast, <laughs> um, I did not stand up and say, I'm going to save someone. In fact, it was quite the opposite. I waited to see if there was anyone else who would stand up and help. And, the uh, mark of a trained yeah. physician. There you just duck. Keep your so head true. down. <laughs> I mean, I just remember finishing a, a shift, you know, and, and coming back, uh, flying out, back out to Southern California to, to see my family. And anyway, so uh, there were actually two women who stood up and ran up to the front of the plane. And so I was kind of looking over, the, over at them from a little bit far away, and I noticed that, you know, they were still kind of looking around, maybe having some difficulty in, in taking care of this uh, fellow passenger. And so then I finally said, okay, I'm, I'm going to go up there and see what's going on. You know, a very similar kind of story, actually. Uh, there was a man kind of Clenched, clenching his chest, leaning forward, definitely, you know, looked like he was about to pass out. I think, you know, uh, you nailed it, you know, in the butt, Josh, is basically the most important thing is to get a quick history, a fo focused history, try to figure out what's bothering the patient, or in this case, a fellow passenger. You know, really quickly, he told me that he was a diabetic, he was feeling dizzy, he was about to kind of pass out. So my very next step was basically to find out what kind of resources we had in the airplane. The flight attendant that quickly brought over the emergency, you know, pack that had all the medications and so on, I guess, which we'll go into more detail later on in the show. And, you know, the first thing was, was I was really surprised as to what was in there. My initial assumption was that maybe there was a little bit of an aspirin, glucose, things like that, very simple things, maybe a Band-Aid. But, you know, lo and behold, <laughs> oh, no. there was, you know, epinephrine. <laughs> there were some really, really powerful medications that we sometimes have to use in the emergency room to, to save lives. And the other two people that were there with me were actually nurses. And I'm sure you know, Josh, you know, physicians are not the best people to, to secure an IV. Uh, <laughs> the only way I can draw blood is with a crayon and a piece of paper and yeah. probably a couple of <laughs> and, and to tell you the truth, I would feel more comfortable in, in shocking someone than, you know, having to put an IV. Two nurses were very, very helpful. They were able to secure an IV uh, very quick. I got a blood pressure, very, very difficult to obtain in a flight because of, of all the engine noise and so on. But I was able to fight, figure out that, you know, he was hypotensive or, or had a very low blood pressure. And so we started a fluid bolus, and then I checked his blood sugar. It was uh, actually very low. So we went ahead and gave him some oral glucose, and uh, he did pretty well. was asked as well what we should divert the plane, and I'm like, where? And he said, Kansas City. I'm like, hell no. So, oh, it's not bad. <laughs> oh, come on. So, not as bad as uh, Siberia, but yeah. there's jazz. <laughs> I said, I, no, I, I agree. It is probably better than Siberia. But anyway, so we ended up just landing in L.A., which was our final destination, and everything went well. I was didn't really know what happened to the gentleman until several months later. I was informed by Continental Airlines at that time, which I missed, but he's doing now really well. So, and everything. Thing went pretty well in the end so nice oh, so they actually contacted you later and let you know that's really nice of them. yeah that was really nice actually yeah so you were foolish enough to leave them with a way to find you <laughs> i learned my lesson i learned my lesson by the end of my first experience please how can we contact you you can't just doing my duty citizen carry on well, up, up and away. i was honestly a little nervous i mean i i was like josh uh you know also a, a resident at that time i was also an intern so i just wanted to make sure that left proper documentation had some way to figure out what happened to the patient in the future so oh whether gosh. he did well or not yeah so. i sent the guy with a whole brand new medical chart taken right on the plane <laughs> to carry with them with his other charts he carried yep. on the plane <laughs> yep so so sarah you know having now heard both of our 
our experiences. How do things work from your end? Is this, you know, when do you make the decision that you need to either contact ground-based resources or ask for medical health professionals on the flight? What's what's your thought process? Right. Basically, anytime someone informs us that they're having any sort of medical issue, that they're not feeling well, the first thing we do is tell the captain and call for a doctor because this is not our job. You know, we're not trained to treat anyone, and if, heaven forbid, someone should you know, have a real problem on the plane. So the first thing we do is really just to call for the doctor, and then hopefully there is someone on the plane. We have a whole list of people who are also qualified, nurse practitioners and PAs and registered nurse and even EMTs and paramedics. Anyone will do. I love that you have a list. Like, I'm just, I can see you're calling <laughs> for help, and you're looking down, and someone's like, what do you do? I'm a dietitian. I'm sorry, you're not I on the list, ma'am. I see that on there. But, <laughs> I, um, we'll take it. <laughs> I, I, I work in homeopathic medicine. Actually, uh, <laughs> that absolutely happened. My first medical emergency ever, we call for the, the medical personnel, as we say, to come back to the back of the plane. And who should race back there but this hippie-looking ponytail doctor? Definitely our doctor. Oh, no, a doctor of, a practitioner of Chinese medicine, naturally, so. (laughs) Your chi is all out of whack. So, so he was. Well, hold on, let's, let's give him a chance. He was back there basically giving this woman a back rub. Luckily, luckily five minutes later, an actual nurse practitioner shows up, thank God. So, (laughs) some, some medicine was distributed. Now, this is not to say that there are not benefits to traditional Chinese medicine, which we will cover. I'm sure there are, but but. probably (laughs) the middle of, you know, some ocean, not the best place to start being treated. Not not the best place, not the best person to open the uh, pack of syringes, but yeah, that's basically to answer your question, and that's the first thing we do is we do call for the medical personnel, any doctors on board. It's just best to have a person who knows what they're doing. So it's always straight to to people on board who you look for. There's no one you can call oh, ground control is, or... We look for someone on board, and then if they assess the passenger and it, it seems serious enough, um, after we call the captain, there's also a medical phone on the plane that connects us directly to... Commissioner Gordon's office? <laughs> <laughs> he, he's a cop, Josh. Batman's a scientist. <laughs> All right, fine. Medical phone on the plane. It connects us directly to a team, supposedly, I've never actually called them, of doctors on the ground who will authorize us to do certain procedures in the absence of any qualified person on board. No, or interesting. We'll, what kind yeah. of procedures are you authorized to do? So let's say there's no healthcare professionals on the plane. It's just you and the other flight attendants. Right. What sort of things are you authorized to do? Okay, well, both of you mentioned the emergency medicine pack on the plane. So uh, in for daily use, we have the ibuprofen and acetaminophen that we can dole out to whomever asks for it. But the emergency medical pack, we can only actually open if there's a doctor there or if we're instructed to do so by the, the medical doctors on the phone. In that pack... We have, you know, everything that you you saw. We have the well, we're, we're, masks, we're on radio, the... so people can't see. <laughs> no, yeah. People can't actually see it, so you're going to have to be a little bit more descriptive. Jaw. 
questions uh, when they were doing this. You know, like the oral glucose, we have sodium chloride flushes. We have a lot of different basic protection things like uh, barrier masks and gloves and all those things. We have the bandages and scissors. Bite stick is one of the items we have. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> a bite a, stick. Like, a bite I'm assuming stick. for a, a bottle of whiskey in a, a bone uh, saw? Yeah. Well, no, the bottle yeah. of whiskey is in the, the regular card, but... <laughs> No, this, unfortunately, there are some, you know, some hangover stuff from old, old, old medical recommendations where, for instance, in the case of epilepsy, or if, you know, if you have to administer something or do something which requires an anesthetic, but you can't give an anesthetic, you know, you've got some old holdovers. Luckily, it is a like a wooden stick and not a bullet. <laughs> Oh my god! I'm just picturing a I, flight to Texas with some guy sitting there. It's like, bite down. This is gonna hurt. <laughs> so let me let me break it down because Sarah and Josh, you guys were kind enough to send us an article from the ACEP, and I'm looking at the contents of the emergency medical kit right now, and essentially. You guys have the medications to respond to either uh, a respiratory problem, mm-hmm. so things like albuterol and corticosteroids in case the throat or the lungs acutely shut down. Exactly. You have things. To, uh, you have things to respond to in the case of a heart attack, or very low blood pressure or shock. So that's things like fluids and epinephrine, and you said aspirin. I see nitroglycerin down here as well yes and then a couple of medications to counter poisonings like atropine stuff to stop nausea and vomiting so air sickness you've got an anti-emetic on there and then the equipment box it looks like pretty much everything that you would need for an emergency medicine technician if they were responding to an emergency and needed to do a patch job or start an IV or inject something so gloves needles lines, you have a stethoscope, you have a blood pressure cuff, a sphygmomanometer, and it looks like both of you guys, uh, it looks like there are airways as well, so if you need to intubate someone on a plane, you could do it. I believe uh, you can't intubate someone, but you can place an LMA, which is uh, a special... Oh, uh, just an airway, oropharyngeal. Correct, and and I believe... uh, So what's the the difference? Intubating is actually usually sedating someone and uh, sticking a or you know uh, putting in a tube down someone's trachea and then connecting it usually to a ventilator to to adequately ventilate a patient. Whereas a LMA is basically a specialized mask that actually goes into the mouth and covers the not only the trachea but also the esophageal area. You know, it usually doesn't require. Uh, as much expertise, it's much easier to place, especially in such an environment, a tight environment like a like an airplane, is just as good as an endotracheal tube, especially for a short-term period. The whole goal is to adequately ventilate someone uh, so that they're able to perfuse or send oxygen to the brain and, and all the vital organs until the patient can be transported to a, a higher level of care. The other, even beyond the kit that we we're just talking about, is a uh, defibrillator that can shock people. Right, right. That that is also included, I believe, in every airplane, at least in America or in the United States, since 2004. Yes, absolutely. At least yeah. one. Sarah, correct me if I'm wrong. I believe that pretty much all every flight attendant knows how to use these devices. Oh, yeah. we um, That's actually 
not only something we do when we're initially trained, but every year in when we go back for continued training to, you know, keep our, I don't know, certificate active uh, or what have you, we re-practice doing the defibrillator and doing CPR. Okay, so that's part of, you You guys take first aid, or not first aid, but you guys take CPR, and it sounds like not advanced cardiac life support, but somewhere kind of in the middle. Yeah, we, we, rescue practice, we, have to, we have to practice and get this right to continue to fly every year. So we do do the chest compressions with the barrier mask on the dummy every year, and we yep. do the uh, defibrillator Alice, every year. Alice, Alice, are you okay? <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> or no, Annie? Annie? Annie, are you okay? Yeah. Annie, are you okay? Said Annie, are you okay? Annie, are you okay? Is that what that song's about? I can't even tell That's... you how much <laughs> our human resources person hates me every time during CPR recertification. Because it's it's a moral imperative for me to sing Michael Jackson while performing CPR. <laughs> well, uh, Sarah, to answer your question, Annie, are you okay? Or Smooth Criminal is not necessarily about performing CPR, but that song, that tempo is the perfect tempo for doing chest compressions. And you can also use the Bee Gees, Staying Alive, Staying Alive. I've heard the, oh, the oh, Bee Gees. Oh, oh, Staying Alive. <laughs> <laughs> I will keep that in mind when I go through training this year. That's positive. Yeah, that's that. That's the perfect pace. That's about a hundred beats per minute. So right? that covers all the people from the seventies and the eighties. Now, if we can just find one good Taylor Swift song to do CPR <laughs> to, uh, we could reach the whole next generation. But you want them to stay alive, so maybe you shouldn't. Well, maybe not. Maybe not the people listening to the Taylor Swift, but the ones, but the ones performing CPR. No, but then you're gonna plant a Taylor Swift song into people's heads. That's cruel and unusual, punny. <laughs> Why do you guys hate Tay Tay so much? <laughs> Stop calling her Tay Tay. Who gave her that nickname? Is that from you? <laughs> No, The Rock. The Rock just called her Tay-Tay on that stupid lip-sync pump. Anyway, there are a number of songs that you can use to correctly do the speed at which you perform CPR. And two of the best-known are Smooth Criminal as well as Stayin' Alive by the Bee Gees. Flight personnel, fine, I'll take responsibility for you. You could say attendance, I just like the word personnel. (laughs) (laughs) She's a person. Her actual title is attendant, but, you know. All right. no, <laughs> so it, it is wonderful to know that flight attendants, as well as probably other crew, right? I'm guessing pilots and co-pilots are trained in CPR and the use of a defibrillator. That's really awesome. No, I really hope I never actually have to use it. But yes, we are okay. is a requirement. And uh, and the defibrillators are really really life saving. You know, been proven time and time again. It's absolutely instrumental. I believe that that flight personnel or attendants know how to use them. The machines so. themselves are actually remarkable. I thought when I was first exposed to them, they really tell you what to do. You basically just turn it all on. And I think this is great and it because talks to you. yeah, it talks to you. And I right. I really hope that if I ever actually have to do it. I mean, I, I imagine I'll be in a panic mode. So it's nice to have that voice yeah. that says, you know, yeah. place the stickers here. <laughs> oh, no, stand back. Press and not to worry, Sarah, yeah. it also tells you what not to do either. So <laughs> yeah. it tells you not to shock when someone is awake exactly. smiling and talking it's, it's to you. Exactly, it's really nice. Because so, that wouldn't be good. <laughs> Unless you're particularly vindictive. 
Yeah. <laughs> Ask me for another Coke. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. Right? Like, do not shock. Oh, stewardess, I'm sorry, did you say do not shock? <laughs> Interestingly enough, you say when there's not medical personnel, but there have been a number of studies done on this, and one of the, m the more recent ones I got a chance to take a look at was from the New England Journal of Medicine, and was written in 2013, and they actually took a look at outcomes of medical emergencies on commercial airline flights. Now, wow. airlines are not required to report these numbers. You know, it's all entirely voluntary. This particular thing recorded all calls to a medical communication center, which I'll tell you right now, when I flew as an intern, I had no clue that most airlines now do have some kind of contract with ground-based Positions and there is that medical phone that you mentioned with people who are actually trained to render aid as opposed to, say, an intern and a dermatologist get on a plane, which sounds like a <laughs> beginning of a terrible joke, but is actually your medical, your medical health care personnel. But they, they took a look at all the medical calls made to these communication centers from five domestic and international airlines from 2008 through 2010. And without boring you with too many of the details, the interesting thing is they said in about 80% of these flights, there was some kind of healthcare professional on board, whether it was an EMT, a doctor, a nurse. They didn't specify, but about 80% of the time, there was somebody on board. Wow. And we can extrapolate from nice. that if people are like myself and ER Josh, that maybe 100% of the time there was someone on board, but 80% of the time they volunteered that fact. Wow, it's pretty incredible. That's interesting. Actually. actually, I've had about three emergencies in my tenure as a flight attendant, and each time a medical personnel was on board. Luckily, yeah. so your odds are actually pretty good. Now, how trained this medical personnel may be is different because, again, I am trained as an internal medicine doc. So if something comes up with a small child, I don't really know what to do. Similarly, Santos is an infectious disease physician, and he's a little bit far removed from cardiac emergencies. So the... Yeah, and a pediatrician. Also a pediatrician. So the person you're getting is not necessarily specifically trained for the emergency you may be having, unless, of course, you end up with someone like ER Josh. And in this case, ER really gets to shine because they do have such a broad range of training for everything that really what you want is an emergency medicine doc or nurse on that flight with you if you're not sure. Failing that, an internal med because we deal with the next biggest range of things, although less emergent settings. Let's take a look kind of, uh, the one thing I do want to mention is, uh, ER Josh, you said your, your person during your story was hypoglycemic. And I do have a list of all the things that are in the emergency medicine flight kit. And I don't know if you, if you noticed this or not, but Although there is an amp of glucose, there is not, in fact, a glucometer. That's yes. right. Oh, there's no finger stick. Yeah. Okay. So what you really have to hope is that someone else on that flight is diabetic and willing to let you use their glucometer in order to check right. the blood sugar. I, so can, I, I can actually speak to this, mm -hmm. too, a little bit. In training, we are given the symptoms of a hypoglycemic reaction. Hopefully, a person who has diabetes would be carrying their their monitor on them at all times. But <laughs> that's adorable. <laughs> yeah, right. And, and you're, you're, <laughs> would be traveling with their monitor in their carry-on bag. The symptoms, the common symptoms, as as you know, are 
feeling lightheaded, sweating, all of the above. And we don't even have to get into the medical kit for that. I mean, everything on the plane, you know, has about three pounds of sugar in it already. So <laughs> the, tra- the training we receive is basically to give them a cup of orange juice and put about three packs of sugar that you put in coffee, empty those of the orange juice, stir it around, and give it to them, and there you go. So, exactly. Yeah. Or, you know, some of the yeah. M&Ms or something, or cookies. <laughs> and, and give, them a, actually, give them a first-class meal. So. Right. So someone whoa, who, whoa, whoa. Let's not go crazy here. <laughs> <laughs> we don't give those out to just anyone. <laughs> but someone who knows what, what's happening or they're experiencing these symptoms, we, we're supposed yeah. to go and ask them if they've eaten anything all day and if if the answer is no because a lot of times people could be rushing if they have that early morning flight they you know rush to the airport they're waiting in security they're going to the gate they're nervous they don't think about oh well i should eat something and then by the time you know it's three hours later they're mid-flight and they're about to pass out and that's you know where we come in and see what they've eaten that day and then give them the the orange juice magic so That sounds about right. (laughs) (laughs) So the tougher thing probably to deal with in terms of diabetes is probably a hyperglycemic state. So if the person, for instance, had forgotten to take their shot of insulin, and if they are headed into high, high blood sugar, so this is probably much more difficult to deal with because in this case it would be much more helpful to have a glucometer and you need medications like insulin which plus or minus that the patient brought with definitely and most airlines recommend diabetics to bring their own glucometer which is probably what happened in my situation very important that a diabetic especially an insulin dependent diabetic brings their own insulin uh, as well as a glucometer and you're right uh, you know it, it is much more difficult to treat someone with high blood sugar because if you guys look in the pack you know there's only a 500 milliliter normal saline bag in there and one of the main stays of treating someone who has very very high blood sugar is to give IV fluids and unfortunately at least you you can't really you know in an airplane setting that could be a diversion setting or you know just have them really you know, get a bottle of water and start start going <laughs> but yeah, that presupposes that they're conscious enough to be able to take oral fluids. Correct. Yeah. Right. Uh, sure. Yeah. And, uh, you know, also insulin is another another treatment, too, and which is why it's very, very instrumental that, that a diabetic brings her own insulin because, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't believe the medical pack actually has any insulin in it. Not but, in the yeah. medical pack mm. uh, descriptions I'm seeing for my right. airline. Yeah. So. Diabetes is definitely a hard one to manage on a long flight because you know most cardiac conditions you know it you know you you take your medications maybe once or twice a day respiratory conditions if you're an asthmatic you're going to use them once or twice a day but you don't have a steady blood level of something like sugar which you have to maintain this is a good time actually to remind everybody anybody who's traveling please do carry some form of uh, information that you know what medications you take and why and if you need a medical alert bracelet please go and for get the one. love of crackers the it'll it'll world. stop interns and residents the world over yeah. from having panic attacks <laughs> if they are called to your aid 
Yeah. And also... We, we live off of information. Right. Information saves lives. And also make sure that uh, as, a, as a traveler that you always have your medications with you in your carry-on. For example, seizures. Uh, there's also not any uh, seizure medications in this medical pack either. And so if you, for whatever reason, get a, you know, have, start having a seizure, very, very important that you have your medication with you. Sarah, what kind of information do you like to have when a patient is traveling with a chronic medical condition or with medications on board? Of course, you don't need them to come on board with a giant folder. <laughs> right. And be like, here's my list of 17 medications, my dear, and here is my bedpan schedule. As you can tell, Sarah works yeah. for British Airways. Yeah. No, it's all... <laughs> this is a bias I have. Whenever it's like a, a spoiled rich patient, it's a British... Actor. I say all the shit. Here's my medication as well as a spot of tea. <laughs> so, we, um... so, Sarah... Yeah, what what do you like to hear from a patient in terms of uh, th these are my meds, this is what I need kind of I thing? I honestly don't want to hear anything. From <laughs> <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> nothing. I, right. No, there's nothing. I mean, unless you need to tell a flight attendant that something is going to happen, the less information we have from everyone, the better. Um, okay. If you do have, um, say, a portable oxygen unit... We're going to need to know about that. If you need to have it connected at all times, you know, during takeoff and landing, or if you just need to use it while we're in flight, or if you just have it with you, but you don't necessarily need to use it, that sort of information is very necessary. Um, it's given to the gate agent, the person who's um, scanning your tickets, as well as the flight attendant, so they can sort of okay. give that information, pass it on to us. Otherwise, if um, there's any any sort of minor thing that you might be having, we don't need to know about it unless it's becoming imminent, and that's why there's the call bell. So use the call bell in an event of an emergency so we can come and find out what's wrong. If you're suddenly feeling nauseous, feel free to call us. Otherwise, we don't need to know because there's really not much that we can do for you. Um, <laughs> Although I will say, hypoglycemic, the vegetarian meal choice is actually really good for people with type 1 diabetes because most vegetarian meals tend to contain pasta-based dishes or rice, which are really high in carbohydrates. This is true. Yeah. This is true. <laughs> okay, so keep medical information, pertinent information on you, but don't necessarily regale the flight attendants with your life story. We are being regaled with a lot <laughs> so, of things as everyone comes on the plane. It's 150 people yeah. telling us some problem that they've had, right. you know. Sure. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> in short, we don't need a family history. We need a brief uh, past medical history and a list of medications and probably uh, some, you know, if you have any allergies. And that's pretty allergies. much what I would Absolutely. Focus on. People have come on and, and let us know about allergies, which is nice. It's helpful to. That said, there's peanut products on the plane have been removed because there are so many severe peanut allergies. You're not going to get any peanuts in your little bag of nut mix or anything like that. But it, it is good to know if there's something severe. And obviously, if someone has a, a real major debilitation, like blindness or some other condition, we're going to know about it. So that in the event okay. of an emergency on the plane, 
we'll know if there's someone who has a little bit more trouble. Now tell me, Sarah, <laughs> if you're allergic to people, could you be upgraded to first class? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's if you're allergic to poor people. <laughs> <laughs> Terrible. Please send your complaint letters to Travel Medicine Podcast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. One word. If you're allergic to people, you're upgraded <laughs> to driving there. <laughs> <laughs> A bus. Have you gone Greyhound? <laughs> And Sarah, what what's done? So the medical pack that I'm the, I'm looking over, and thank you so much, Josh and, and Sarah, for sending us that information. We we can actually put that link up on our on on our website after this podcast goes up. But what do we do for little people? What do we do for pediatri- pediatrics? <laughs> no, God, I said the wrong thing. What do we do for children? Is there a Brazla tape available? And if I want to give a weight uh, a weight measured dose of something like epinephrine, for instance, if a child goes into shock, can I? Is that available to me? Can I shock do that? Because he saw a midget. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you get off of midgets? No. Nope, what were you nope, asking? Was the wrong on the plane? I'm looking at the list right now. So I, w- in emergency medicine, I'm sure Josh, uh, you know this. And we have something called a Braslo tape. Okay. Which is. You you lay down this piece of tape next to a child, and it's actually by height, they fall into a color zone. So red, yellow, green, something like that. And according to that zone, you can have a dose of medication ready without having to precisely measure according to the child's weight and everything. So basically, you can give medications in a hurry you know, without having to do a bunch of calculations because everything in pediatrics is based on weight. And, and that's correct. So, yeah, and uh, yeah. as far as looking at the list goes, I don't believe there's a broad I tape. don't see that either. Uh, although there are oh. guides uh, in their little handbooks that guide a, a physician or a medical personnel in treating someone. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. One that's very sick. I believe I, I did see that in the list. So sure. while it may not be a Braslow tape, there are some, some guide to detailed yeah. information and dosing recommendations for pediatric patients. So why don't we talk about a few of the other very common medical emergencies that come up. And when I say common, the FAA, again, based on that same flight information I told you, which is not required to be reported, estimates that 1 in 11,000 passengers will have a medical emergency or that for every 
10,000 to 40,000 passengers, there will be about some kind of medical event, whether it's not not an emergency, and that's in uh, flight passengers. So if you have, you know, 40,000 people flying, which is, I don't know, like a, a day at a small airport, there'll be at least one medical event that takes place. So the most common in-flight emergencies tend to fall into a couple pretty standard groups. Uh, the one that I think is is scariest to physicians, although not necessarily always to some of the others, is chest pain. Then there is syncope, asthma exacerbations, and GI complaints. You know, obviously there will be things like jet lag, there will be things like coughs, or, you know, certainly concerns about infectious diseases depending on where you're traveling from and all we can say is you know make sure you take the proper travel medications but the the big four tend to be chest pain syncope asthma exacerbations or we'll say respiratory problems and gi complaints and uh for those listening syncope is fainting right fainting or near fainting which is called presyncope which is when you sort of just feel a little woozy like you're about to pass out right so we already right. talked about one of the common causes of syncope or fainting, which is low blood sugar. Um, why don't and we've also covered chest pain? And you know, again, there's no angiogram lab on a plane. You're really just kind of restricted to looking at giving them the aspirin, giving oxygen, getting a really good history, and checking blood pressure, and just hoping that you don't have to divert the plane, but that it's up ultimately to the clinical. Uh, clinical decision-making process or judgment of the onboard medical professional or the flight attendant being coached by the ground team. And I think the defibrillator will also give us a rhythm strip. So at least we'll have one pseudo-lead of, of an EKG, of an electrocardiogram. But, but now FAA regulations require all U.S. airlines weighing 7,500 pounds or more and serviced by at least one flight attendant to carry a defibrillator and an enhanced emergency medical kit. I really and, hope that every flight has a flight attendant. So. Well, I think it, there are... It does. I think, <laughs> we're, I think we're just talking about the small private planes at that point. Right, right like the cargo happening. jets. Uh, and yeah. those we don't care about, so... <laughs> no, when I, I when I was buzzing around between Iowa Kansas City or Iowa St Louis flight, those little guys that seated about sixteen or eighteen passengers, I think those didn't have any flight attendants on board. It was just the pilot and us. Mm. Are you sure? And at that point, at that <laughs> point, it might have been it might have been pre two thousand four, okay, <laughs> or two thousand three, right? And old. thankfully, the pilots trained in CPR, but. Who's flying the plane if he's helping you out? <laughs> <laughs> Autopilot. The Autopilot. first officer comes out. The one that you inflate, right? <laughs> is, excuse me. Is there a thirteen-year-old bold? Is there a thirteen-year-old on board with excellent video game skills? <laughs> skills spelled with a Z. Skill with mad skills. Are they elite? <laughs> so let's let's kind of move on and talk about the other really big area of medical concern which is going to be i know what you mean delivering a baby you're right yeah. sure sure let's do it <laughs> no, yeah. there are there are umbilical cord clamps in that emergency kit because i can't even tell which you which is all you need it's all you need is a clamp and hot water you just get some hot water i mean if i had a nickel for every baby i've delivered on a plane 
on a plane. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, physicians pretty much all over recommend not to fly after... 20th week, 20th Correct, week, yes. Yeah. And the reason why is they don't want to be delivering a baby in mid-flight. It's also important to note that most uh, emergencies happen first and third trimester. So uh, believe it or not, the second trimester is actually the best time to, to take that trip to Europe. Yeah, there is also no blood available in the medical kits to, to be given as a transfusion. So and a limited amount of fluid, as you said before. Exactly. 500 milliliters. Only a third or a fourth of that IV fluid actually goes into your vasculature. For those of you at home who are not well-versed in the metric system, <laughs> 500 milliliters, you can think of it as... 250 milliliters is your standard 8-ounce cup of water. Two of those. If you want another way of thinking of it, those giant liter Coke bottles you see in Walmart and Target and everywhere else, half of that. So, you know, all you're carrying is about half of a Coke bottle worth of fluid in the emergency medical kit, which is not really a lot. Not at all. Case in point, people, you know, septic patients, people who have a bloodstream infection, we often give them four to six liters of IV fluids when they come into our emergency room. Just to piggyback on that story, um, the only diversion I've ever had was for a pregnant woman who was having some inexplicable pain. And there, Uh yeah, there was a, I think a cardiologist was on board and he recommended that we divert. And within uh, 20 minutes of that recommendation, we were landed at a different airport. Okay. So for the listeners out there, in case this episode sounds really scary, <laughs> the airlines are very, very concerned about your health. So we will land. We will land wherever we can. If someone is sick and needs to get off, and there will be an ambulance there, and you will be quickly to the next hospital. I mean, unless you're bundled away to Soviet Russia, (laughs) (laughs) where baby delivers you. (laughs) What what happened to that that girl or that woman? You know, Sarah. I don't know. Um, that's why I was so impressed that someone actually contacted Josh to let him know how the the patient was on the flight because you know, as a a flight attendant, we really never. Get a follow. Oh, you don't get to hear the punch. Yeah, we, yeah. we, um, you know, we called for a doctor. We got the recommendation. We landed. We assured all the other passengers that we were going to make it to our normal final destination as soon as we could, and we deal with all of their anxiety and anger. And then we land and just basically usher the person who needs to get off the plane as soon as possible and and keep everyone else under control (laughs) (laughs) as much as we can and that's really the end of it Um, the woman seemed fine um she might have been and i'm really an amateur at this maybe about five or six months pregnant and she was just having some pain that she'd never experienced before and didn't quite know what was going on i um i didn't hear that she was having any bleeding or anything like that but still just just even that was enough to divert the plane so let's hope that she did well i i really hope so 
<laughs> so. <laughs> Sure. No, that that kind of exam, like an obstetric physical exam that you need to do for a, a pregnant woman who's having that kind of pain, you know, aside from feeling their belly and listening to their tummy, it is a little scary because, of course, there's nothing in that medical kit to actually, you know, look into the birth canal right. or anything like that to, <laughs> and, to make sure that there's bleeding or that the cervix is still closed right. and that kind of a thing. Josh, as an internist, are you are you keeping up with your OBGYN? Again, that so for all of you listening at home, we're really confused. Two Joshes. Yeah, <laughs> he's not just asking me twice. Yeah. <laughs> I'm getting a little confused here too. So we've got yeah. ER Josh or EJ. <laughs> oh, f- <laughs> what? <laughs> Maybe we just need to keep all it at right. EJ for future pro- you know well, podcasts. Sure. We'll, we'll figure it out. <laughs> yeah. The only reason I am still even remotely familiar with obstetrics is because, like one of our other frequent guests, Dr. Susanna, I do a lot of locums or traveling work. And I will go out to small towns where I'm kind of required to be the overall specialist. But no, I have not delivered a baby or done any kind of obstetric-type work in probably two or three years since medical school. So it's, yeah. you know, I I have the skills, but I should not be the first person that you're going to. And honestly, uh, even an ER physician should not usually be the first person either. But, uh, you know, if we have to, then, then we have no choice. And, you know, we're reasonably able to do that. These don't come to the ER to deliver babies, so. I well, mean, I usually go to the ER, but expect... You expect for the OB guy to do it, right? Exactly, and and pretty much what we do is when, and at least in our emergency room, when when you know you're about to deliver, we swiftly, and I mean swiftly, uh, wheelchair you swiftly. upstairs to the to the labor and delivery floor. Yeah. So, <laughs> Taylor, swiftly, I will hurt you. I will reach through this Skype call, Josh. <laughs> okay, so, for, for Sarah and and ER Josh, making a Taylor Swift reference has been a running gag for like the last five episodes <laughs> yeah I can see episodes. that <laughs> and I always find a way to work it in and Santos just can't shake 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 it off no I can't hey I happen I to actually shake, like shake. your new album so oh I totally love Tay Tay but, but how do you people know that she's putting out new albums <laughs> well <laughs> jo- jo- <laughs> Josh, before I, I, you know, before we started on babies, I think I cut you off and and got us down on the, the baby tangent. But were were you intending to talk about babies for this stretch? Or I was actually going to talk about pulmonary disease, but you did you oh. did deliver yeah. the perfect opportunity to talk oh. about pregnancy. <laughs> so okay. all right. Yeah, I'm so happy I was there for that. Right? Groans, puns. <laughs> Look, guys, I, I have to make bad jokes or medical etymology every episode. It's in my contract, which admittedly I drew up, but nonetheless, pulmonary disease. A large number of people out there, despite recommendations from doctors and everyone else, are smokers and may experience Chronic Obstructive Pulmonary Disease, or COPD. There are also a large number of people who may have asthma. And, in fact, bronchial asthma is probably the most frequently occurring chronic respiratory disease among the traveling population. It prompts the most questions on fitness for travel. 
and air travel is usually contraindicated, meaning not allowed or recommended against, for people with asthma that is very severe or has required recent hospitalization. And the reason we worry about pulmonary disease in travelers are because the air up there is depressurized and it is not the same as the air at sea level, which is what you sitting in your apartment or car or workplace are basically at. You're breathing air with a pressure that's equivalent to sea level or close to it. So why does this affect you? For people who have lung problems like COPD, your lung function may not be the same at the average air flight. Now, Sarah, how high up does does most commercial air travel go? Probably thirty to 40,000 feet average, unless you're doing one of those big international flights, which might vary. But most domestic flights, yeah, thirty to 40,000. And it's important to note that the cabin pressure is pretty much regulated as if you're at a height of 5,000 to 8,000 feet. Am I correct, Sarah? Yes. That's, that's true. And, uh, you know, at that pressures, I mean, forget about having COPD. You, you know, uh, even in the person, the traveler who has a normal lung, your oxygen saturation on average is only at 90% out of 100. And, uh, you know, for people who don't have respiratory problems, chronic respiratory problems, 90% is almost always fine. However, if you, in fact, do, then that can pose real, real problems. Meaning, if you do have a history of chronic lung disease, it's usually recommended that before taking any kind of flight, you do what's called a desaturation test or a arterial oxygenation test, which will determine will you need oxygen for the length of a flight when your blood is not going to be as good at utilizing oxygen and your lungs are not going to be as good at holding on to oxygen as they would be on the ground. Interestingly enough, this also holds for people who are anemic from the other end because you have two two things you have to consider. One is the blood, which is carrying the oxygen, and the other are the lungs, which are bringing the oxygen into the body and delivering it to the blood. So people with lung diseases have a problem on the lung side of that equation and may need help bringing in sufficient oxygen to avoid becoming weak, short of breath, dizzy, or having chest pains. People who are anemic such as people who may have sickle cell disease or who have iron deficiency anemia and even a number of vegans because you're not getting enough iron in the diet, all are going to have problems not necessarily getting air in but having enough blood to take up the required amount of air. So in both of those cases, it's encouraged to correct any underlying problem, whether that means increasing your iron or getting blood transfusions before flights or determining if you need oxygen for the length of a flight. Sarah, what are the things you need to know if a person does come on board with oxygen? Do they just do they have to tell someone at the gate, "Hey, I'm bringing oxygen on," or do you need to know any particulars in terms of where to place them? Yeah, absolutely. They should tell the person at the gate, depending on how much they need the oxygen, particularly if they need it during takeoff and landing. That is a problem for some seats because takeoff and landing is considered kind of a, a crucial time in flight. So if something is going to happen where we need to have an emergency evacuation, 
it's going to be during takeoff or landing. So that's why the flight attendants come through and pester you to make sure all your bags are stowed and that they're under the seat in front of you and that your seatbelts are on because if something's going to go down, that's when it is. So if you do need a portable oxygen unit and you need to be using that during all phases of a flight, you need to make sure that your seat is moved so that you're not in the bulkhead, one of the front seats of the each class of the plane, or you should ideally be close to the window. Logistics. Now, the majority of home oxygen users are on flow rates of usually only about one to two liters per minute and can be accommodated in flight with flow rates of up to four liters. Uh, most airline companies will usually supply nasal prongs, just like headphones, and commonly, and don't commonly, tell them that. we don't have headphones anymore. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, you can still get nasal prongs, but just stick them in your ears. No, I think that both quiet comforts. Or <laughs> I think it's a good idea to not expect any airline company to have what you're going to need medically. If you know in advance that you're going to need something, you should bring that with you. Now, one of the other things that also I think a lot of people don't tend to think about is that the air on on planes is not humidified and does tend to be rather dry. So people who have problems with sinusitis or dry eyes or even lung conditions that could be affected by a drier environment. So if you have some kind of bronchitis or uh, people with cystic fibrosis or anything like that, you're going to have more secretions, the dry air may kind of provoke more asthma-type symptoms. So it is something, again, to keep in mind if you need to bring your own little air humidifier or nebulizer on the flight with you. Right. I, that's a really, I'm glad you actually said something about that. Just even a normal person without a medical history, I'm always disappointed when people don't drink something. You know, it's... Just get a glass of water, for God's sakes. You know, it's an, a two-hour flight, and we're literally leaching the moisture out of your body on this plane. Like, please, please at least drink six ounces of water from this cup so you can maintain your normal, like, body mm -hmm. chemistry. So absolutely, hydrate, hydrate, hydrate. I mean, that's what they drill into us in training, and that's what everyone who travels should do. Don't get sick. Ask for water. They'd much rather bring you water than a medical professional. <laughs> Absolutely. Please don't mess up my overnight by not drinking. <laughs> you heard it here first, folks. Flight attendants encouraging you to drink. <laughs> not water. 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 Uh, the last thing I'd like to cover is especially something that's become much more of an issue in, in today's day and age of frequent medical tourism is traveling after a surgical procedure. Uh, now, I don't know how much this comes up for you, ER Josh, because usually you're sending people to the operating room, not dealing with them from it. But have you ever had someone ask you if they could go flying or if they could go on a flight after they've had some kind of treatment or procedure in the ER? You know, uh, to tell you the truth, actually not. No, I haven't. Uh, I mean, probably these are questions more reserved towards the, the person who actually did the surgery or the surgeon. You know, there are some things to kind of think about. For example, any kind of major abdominal procedures or surgeries, usually it's best to at least wait 12 hours for any uh, laparoscopic 
procedure. And if they actually have to open you up and open your belly up uh, with a larger incision, then probably uh, at least 24 to 48 hours is, is the key. Actually, any kind of procedures to deal with the, the middle or the inner ear and talking to your doctor about any specifics, you know, as to when, you know, it's prudent to travel. Exactly. Consult with your physician. One of the fun facts, I like, well, fun for me, is that intestinal gas will expand 25% by volume at a cabin altitude of 8,000 feet, which... <laughs> <laughs> that is an unfortunate truth. Uh, from my perspective, <laughs> and that's in an un—that's in an unpressurized cabin. Correct. Right? So a dry, know. unpressurized cabin. So that's why—that's <laughs> why ER Josh was saying post-abdominal surgery patients can have a relative ileus for several days, and that puts them at a risk for tearing of suture lines, bleeding, and stretching of gastric or intestinal mucosa. So that's why he's saying you know air travel should be discouraged for one to two weeks after this kind of procedure. Same thing, you wouldn't want to sure. advise it for even up to 24 hours following even a procedure as simple as a colonoscopy because of the large amount of gas often still present in the colon. Ha 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 ha, colon <laughs> gas still expands 25%. So, you know, imagine all those people that you complain about sort of putting their seat backs and stretching out and, you know, man-spreading on the, on the flight well, all the bacteria in your gut are doing the exact same thing, and there's no one around <laughs> to help regulate them from from relaxing. There's no gut flight attendants. Yeah, there. Uh, that's that's why a lot of flight attendants will put Vicks around their nose to uh, even oh. to even prepare themselves for people who are in a post burrito state on the flight. <laughs> you know, I thought I smelled menthol. When I got on the plane, like it's a, it's a very oh I'm on the plane now. Like my brain knows because I smell menthol. <laughs> That's what it is. Okay, I thought you guys sprayed something in the. We air. have a little spray too that we try to use unobviously. <laughs> we like I've gone yeah. to the cabin sort of spritzing it. Spritzing. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> like in certain areas. Yeah, yeah. discreetly. <laughs> yeah. Just uh, uh-huh. just a little da da for you. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Let's close out oh, with yeah. infections, and then I think we've covered Make all... Me relevant. We've covered all the other major issues, <laughs> well, so why don't we talk about the one everyone worries about, the big, the big yeah. scary, you know, what if somebody who's infected with something gets on a plane? Sure. Santosh, <laughs> take it away. Take it away, <laughs> all right. <laughs> So I will actually defer to Sarah in terms of policies on quarantine and lockdown and that no, kind of actually, thing. Because yeah, I think, this is really ti- yeah. uh, timely. Um, yeah. After the whole Ebola okay. thing broke out, sure. you know, there's a whole... Yeah, don't, don't sneeze. We have a whole, you know, like litany of questions. Have you been to West Africa? Are you feeling feverish? Have you eaten anything? that you think might be doing this and um you know i was i was on a flight i wasn't actually the person who had contact with this person but i think the family just sort of wanted sympathy for their child but they didn't realize what exactly they were doing so the the flight attendant in question kept asking trying trying to give them an out if that's the case we're gonna have to let customs know that you are coming in the country with someone who's out of fever welcome to quarantine we are the like it or not the eyes and the ears of most people immigrating into the country so it's 
become our job to monitor if there's anyone who's obviously sick or obviously diseased to let the authorities know so they can prevent this. <laughs> you guys are like the men yeah. in black defending us yeah. from aliens. <laughs> aliens. <laughs> it's not that glamorous, Although there have been plenty of times where I've touched down, I've been like, what happened on that flight? <laughs> you know, someone, someone flashing things me. I know someone. Oh, we have those. The, the flight, the flight <laughs> safety instructions are neuralizers now. Yeah, the neuralized <laughs> standard issue. Was that Tommy Lee Jones? I think Tommy Lee Jones was on that <laughs> The one thing I wanted to address is, of course, this is a podcast in the United States, and everyone here who is talking right now on the podcast is from the United States. So we think about it this way very... You know, we're we're a plane centric country because to really to get out of this country, you you need to get on a plane or to get in uh, Mexico and Canada notwithstanding. So unlike say the European Union, where you would need to have checkpoints at things like train stations aboard the Eurostar, we don't have any entry points like that. Our major points of entry into the United States. As far as the CDC and all of the other health organizations are concerned, are planes. Now, we had our Ebola episode, Josh, and you know we already talked about Ebola is only communicable through bodily fluids, so actually we shouldn't be as scared about Ebola in terms of transmitting all of the flight as other things like you know things that are airborne, measles, for instance, which we had an mm. uptick of. <laughs> So these are these are the ones that myself as an infectious disease practitioner rather than these diseases like Ebola which transmit by touch or by movement of fluids things that can become airborne. So yes, measles, the common cold, flus, influenza is a really really bad one. And since the advent of transcontinental flight Trying to contain influenza has become more and more of a pain. And right now, we've all but given up, so we beg people to get their immunization. We've managed to cover from from start to finish, gate to gate, as it were. <laughs> I, would, I would also mention uh, DVT prevention. Uh, ah, yes. yes. How could we forget? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know you listeners were wondering about that, but... Uh, <laughs> You know, uh, and this is for this is for flight attendants as well as. Passengers. Oh, we can get everything. So oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm taking all of this in. But uh, you sure, know, sure. contrary to, to popular Call belief, DVT you know, or DVT. <laughs> yeah, I don't even know what DVT is. <laughs> DVT is is basically a blood clot in your leg. It definitely is somewhat of a higher risk of of developing a blood clot in your leg, or really anywhere for that matter especially flights that are transcontinental or international. Contrary to popular belief, I don't believe, you know, correct me if I'm wrong again, Sarah, flight attendants don't uh, care so much that you, you know, get up from your seat and walk around. And uh, that's really the best thing that you, you know, you can do is just to take a little break uh, from sitting down, you know, and stretch your legs and do some uh, exercises, you know, some calf lifts and so on. Right. And, uh, and stay hydrated. Hydration yes, is exactly. key again. Yeah. Um, right. It's funny because I have two different perspectives um, on this. I used to travel really long flights before I was a flight attendant. So, you know, then I had a whole system going after my first experience of having my legs swell up like balloons. 
So then, oh, no. <laughs> I don't know. I was just trying to sit down the whole time. I don't know. So then I was like, yeah, I'm going to get up and, you know, like you said, do calf raises and stuff. And now that I'm a flight attendant, when someone comes back to the galley in our workspace and starts doing yoga, it's actually pretty annoying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's actually kind of cool. The sit down gun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? It's actually so, kind of cool. A lot of these uh, flights, actually, if you look in uh, the back of the uh, in-service menu or, or the little thing that's in your seat, you know, back pocket. If you look at the back, there's often a list of exercises uh, with some illustrations on what to do as well. And you can do these things at your seat, so exactly. you don't have to go back and bother Sarah <laughs> and do yoga. Well, you know, I think it's a good idea to get up, especially, of course, you should come back and, and use the lavatory as necessary. Post-9-11 security concerns sort of frown on having a large group of people standing around back there idly. <laughs> so just I mean we won't think you're a terrorist, but just don't just don't hang around back there. So don't, Sarah don't will be racially there. profiling anybody <laughs> too long. No. No, yes, no yes. I've, I've virtually been annoyed by all races on the airplane, so... Yeah. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> it doesn't matter. At least two of us here tonight are screwed. I might be okay as long as I don't grow my beard out too much. <laughs> so, for, for people listening who are interested to know, DVT is a deep vein thrombosis. So, your legs, when, they, when they're very still, when you're sitting for a long time, your blood is try, you're trying to return back to your heart and get oxygenated and circulate back out again. So, when, when your legs are hanging down for a long period of time, as in when you're sitting, they, the blood has to fight gravity in order to come back. So, if your veins are old or don't work as well, so this is mostly in older people, or if you're dehydrated or if you have a tendency towards certain clotting disorders, that blood, when it sits still for too long in the veins in your legs, will turn into a clot inside of the vein. That in itself, in and of itself is scary because, of course, you want the blood to be circulating, going down into the leg and coming back. But the scariest part is if one of those clots break and then return to the heart and go to the lungs, and then that clot is actually stopping the blood flow of uh, of your lungs so that you're breathing, you're taking oxygen in, but that oxygen can't be delivered to the blood. So these are the ki this is the thing that we're trying to prevent when you're sitting for a long time and your legs are not moving. We're trying to prevent that stasis from happening. So even just getting up and walking, taking a lap around the flight or to the bathroom one or two times for any kind of flight longer than four hours... Would Take be... you longer than four hours, so you really yeah. don't need to get up three times on a two-hour flight. <laughs> Sarah's getting a little scared On here. your commuter. <laughs> in the highly technical medical advice of Sarah, you don't need to get up that often. Um, but no, for, it's unlikely for a clot to form in one hour, but any flight longer than four hours, you should consider doing basic stretches or at least standing up. You know, once every three to four hours. And with that, I think we've covered the great majority of medical conditions that come up on flights. As always, make sure that you talk to your doctor if you have any kind of concerns or want to know if you'll be able to have any issues with traveling. Feel free to ask for help from the flight attendants. They are, as we've learned, well-trained 
for very specific kinds of emergencies. And as gambling goes, you have an 80% chance of there being a medical professional <laughs> around, <laughs> although it won't be me or emergency medicine, Josh. Um, and one other fun thing I always like to do is each time you get on a plane, look at the safety card and pick out which I like to play the safety card time warp and photograph pictures which most accurately match the lyrics of just a jump to the left and a step to the right. (laughs) You'd be surprised how well the lyrics to Time Warp from Rocky Horror can be fit into safety cards. That's fantastic. I've never done that before. And you will be well prepared. I actually collect safety cards from airlines now. Do do you you want them for mine? I actually already have, Sarah. (laughs) Okay. Uh, But yeah, so, so just look for the whole chorus of the Time Warp on the safety card. It's a great game, and that way you'll actually be prepared for the any medical emergencies. Like, oh, this is the jump to the left time. Um, and put your hands on your hips and pull your knees in tight. That's the crash position. <laughs> so that wraps it up. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much. It was really helpful to have you. <laughs> it was fun. It's been fun. a genuine pleasure, and you are always welcome back with any updates that you have. ER Josh, you are potentially joining our our flight crew over here on Travel Medicine. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Josh. Uh, you know, it's my first time. I had a really great time. It's a lot of fun. Uh, you know, um, I hope it's uh, helped some of our listeners here today. But, you know, I'd really love it. Invite back and uh, yeah. So. And, and we'll just, as soon as we, you'll be invited back as soon as we figure out how to differentiate which Josh is which. on on the show. Um, That's a work in progress, yeah. The emergency room Josh sounds browner. No. (laughs) Well, all right. I'll throw in one just the tip this time. Uh, From from that trip, one of the places I went when we didn't get diverted to Siberia is deep in a neighborhood of Tokyo known as Nakano. There... (laughs) There is a four-story mall devoted exclusively to collectible figurines. It's known as the Nakano Toy Mall. Admission is totally free because at its base it is a mall, but it is three stories of a number of small booths which sell nothing but toys from top to bottom. Many of them are anime-related from the most popular series like Naruto or Bleach. There's also tin toys, as well as old-time Legos, and I've even managed to track down some old California raisins. So, if you are in Japan and interested in seeing something... I heard you did that. I heard it through the grapevine. (laughs) Well, I bet I saw them and I just had to make sure they'd be mine. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah. So, if you get a chance to go to Tokyo... A short trip on the Orange Line will take you up to Nakano, and you can have a wonderful time wandering around and stop in at the local Mr. Donut, because Japanese donuts are something that you have to experience to believe, and they're wonderful. So, that has been this episode's Just the Tip. (laughs) And until next time, guys, thanks for joining, and happy travels. Bye. Uh, Bye-bye. Bye.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.